listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. All right, guys, we're going to be in the book of Colossians today. If you want to snag a Bible and open up to the beginning of Colossians, if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. Uh, I want you to know we, we super care about access to God's Word. So if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, um, you are welcome just to snag one of those or, or talk to one of uh, our pastors and we'll get you one that's a little nicer. But um, so we have a cool task in front of us today. We are starting uh, to walk through the book of Colossians. Um, we've been kind of hyping this up for a little while. So if you've been with us over the last year or two, um, at the beginning of this year, we gave you guys as a gift these uh, Colossians journals and asked you guys to go through them in your personal devotion and in your discipleship groups and in your GCs uh, so that we could jump into this text together this fall. And we're here. And I've never been more intimidated to preach a book of the Bible because I know all of you are like, know what's up. Uh, some of you have been like, I listen to the whole books preached at other churches that are better than Red Tree. So I'm ready for your subpar sermons. And if that's you, I'm sorry. You, you did that to yourself. <laughs> anyway, so we're, we're jumping into Colossians today. And my task today uh, is going to be a little different for us. I'm going to introduce us to the book, and I'm going to lay some interpretive and contextual groundwork for us uh, and kind of give us an overview of the whole text and then next week, we'll jump into more what you're used to of kind of picking through uh, passages verse by verse. So um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys, like some of today is going to be a little more teachy, a little more heady than maybe we're used to in this context. And so if that's not your jam, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I, would, I think you should stick with us. I think this will prove to be fruitful for you. So uh, we're going to open up the text. We're starting in Colossians Chapter 1, in the first verse of the first chapter of the letter to the Colossians, tells us this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And this is the word of the Lord. And you're like, how are you going to preach that text? Uh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, that's the introduction. That's the opening. Uh, what we have before us is a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae. And so what I would like to do is give us just some, some framework for how to understand this in its historical and in its uh, literary context. And then I'm going to give us an overview of the whole book, talk about kind of the main themes and the main thrust, because you guys know when we, when we get into the weeds of going verse by verse, like it's easy sometimes to miss those overarching uh, kind of brushstrokes of the book. So I'm going to give you that today, the overall message of the book. And I think it'll be really good for our souls, and we'll, we'll end our time with some prayer and communion. Sound like a plan? Cool. So the first thing we have to know is that this book was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Colossae. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, I've got a picture of him here. Uh, this is from Rembrandt. Um, that's not a photo, by the way. 
Uh, I show you guys Rembrandt paintings a lot just because I love Rembrandt. I think he's amazing. He's one of the most prolific Christian artists of all time. Um, This dude painted basically every important scene in the scripture, some of them more than once. And so this is uh, his later portrait of Paul. It's supposed to represent Paul uh, in his Roman house imprisonment, um, which is when most theologians believe uh, that some of Paul's prison epistles were written. So uh, this is old man Paul under house arrest. I don't know why Rembrandt thought that in house arrest he could have a big old sword, but he does. Um, and other than that, the painting's really cool, right? But I just, I imagine if you're arrested in a Roman prison, they don't give you a big old sword. But uh, Paul has one. So uh, this is the Apostle Paul. And, and I know like for some of you guys who are church brats, some of this stuff is going to feel really elementary. But I want to make sure that we're synced up on this. So uh, Paul is one of the most important religious figures in the New Testament. Um, So this is a guy, you can read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. This is a guy who was um, vehement persecutor of the church. Um, The early church, immediately after Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, Paul was one of the first major Jewish voices that kind of brought about the first major persecution of the church, where the church was uh, sent out of Jerusalem because of persecution, unjust arrests, and murders, and beatings, and those things. And Paul was kind of the brains behind that operation. A little later in his life, Christ meets him uh, and basically forces him to a place of conversion. Jesus shows up and says, hey, stop persecuting my church. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm God. And Paul's like, well, I can't do anything about that. So uh, he becomes a believer, and over the course of several years, he doesn't just give over his life to Christ. He becomes one of the most influential leaders in the early Christian movement. The second half of the book of Acts mainly follows the story of Paul. What essentially happens is uh, he kind of represents uh, in Scripture the missionary movement of the early church. There were lots of missionaries in the early church, but Acts kind of does this thing of representative storytelling where it picks a person to tell a larger story of the church. So the first half of Acts tells us about the mother church through the eyes of Peter, and the second half of Acts tells us about the missionary church through the eyes of Paul. And so we learn about these missionary journeys where Paul travels all over the known Roman world preaching the gospel uh, to Gentiles outside the Jewish community and starting churches. And as Paul continues to spend the rest of his life traveling and preaching, he stays in connection and communication with these churches. And this is where we get most of the New Testament. Uh, Most of the tiny little Ian's books in the New Testament are these letters that Paul wrote to various churches, right? Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. That's where we get these, are these correspondences between the Apostle Paul and the churches that he ministered to or helped found. Now, it's important to put that piece in place. We need to understand the genre of the text before we really dig into it. And the reason is this. If we don't put the text in its proper genre, then we can misapply it by accident. And here's what I mean by this. We need to know when we read, especially when we read the epistles, we need to know that we are stepping into a pre-existing relationship and conversation. And here's what I mean by that. When we read, if you were here when we went through the Gospel of Mark, when we read narrative texts, it's really easy to remember that this is about somebody else, right? Right? 
We see the names of characters. And even though there are conversations and discourses, we're reminded constantly that we're getting a view into a story. And it helps us remember the context, right? Because what can happen is sometimes we just take a text and copy and paste it onto our life without doing the work of contextualizing the history, the genre, and those things. And we end up misapplying and missing what God's actually saying in the text. Now, it's easier to do that in a narrative because it's a story. You see the characters, you see the people. But when you get into these letters, that's pure discourse, right, where, where truths are being shared in kind of black and white settings. This is true. You should do this. This is this. It's really easy to subconsciously just put yourself in the place of the audience of that letter and just copy and paste every word and phrase as total... Whoa. The spirit is here. <laughs> and just copy and paste every aspect of the text into your life. And I'm here to tell you guys, that's dangerous. You can't do that. Now, I'm not saying that you just get a cop out from disobeying the whole New Testament because you're like, oh, it's all, it's all got to be contextualized. I don't have to do any of it. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to do the hard work of putting the text in its context. There's, uh, you guys know Todd, Todd Getman out at Apostles, one of the churches we support. He says, if you don't put the text in, the, in its context, you con the text, which is the sort of thing that he can say and it sounds cool, and I said it and y'all just rolled your eyes, and that's fine, and I hope Todd doesn't listen to this later. Anyway, uh, we have to do that hard work, because otherwise, ladies, any of you that have your hair above your shoulders are in sin right now. And guys, any of you whose hair is touching your shoulders, you're in sin right now. Because that's the black and white fact of the text in 1 Corinthians, right? But we do the hard work of putting the text into its historical and cultural context so that we can see the theological gospel truths that are being proclaimed. Does that make sense? So I want to say that on the front end because we are going to dig into the weeds of this book. And your temptation is going to be to totally forget the context and just assume that Paul speaking to the Colossians is Jesus speaking to you. And here's the thing. Most of the time, it will be. Most of the time in the epistles, you can just let the truths of the gospel just wash over you and, and drench over you. But you have to do the work of putting things in perspective. Otherwise, there'll be little pieces that trip you up and you'll end up missing the whole message. Does that make sense? So Paul is writing a letter to the church at Colossae. I've got this quote uh, from Douglas Moo that I want to put up here because I think this is good. He says, um, our concern will be to discern what the portion of God's word has to say to Christians today. But this goal can be obtained only as we carefully and patiently describe what this letter would have meant in its first century context. Again, I, I know that for a lot of you guys, this stuff is really basic, but I want to come back to this because I've been asking you guys to read this book all year. And hopefully you're going to continue to study it uh, in your GCs, in your personal quiet time as we study it. And, and, and I think it'll be really fruitful for you. But the reality is good, faithful exegesis of the text is work. It's why we come at it together. It's why we do the work of praying over the text and asking the Spirit to move and studying and listening to the fruit of academia and listening to the fruit of our leaders and our brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So, 
What is the actual context here? We know who Paul is. We know this is one of his letters. Why did he write this letter? So the interesting thing here is that Paul didn't actually start the church at Colossae. In fact, we actually have zero historical evidence that he ever went there. Um, he, he likely did after, after maybe the book of Acts is over, uh, and we get some clues to that in Philemon, which we'll talk about. But, but we have no idea if he ever actually made it there. Uh, we know for a fact he wasn't the person who founded this church because he's going to talk about the founder of the church in the first chapter, this guy named Epaphras. So if you can uh, pull up, a, I have a map here real quick, and you guys won't be able to see this. So <laughs> maybe you have a study Bible with maps in the back, but you can see, right, this general shape. This is the Mediterranean Sea. So you can know kind of down here in the bottom right corner, uh, this is Israel, right? Like there's, there's the Dead Sea, there's all that, the Jordan River. That's where the entirety of the Gospels takes place. But up here, kind of in the top, in the middle, is this area, Asia Minor, or Fergia, which is great if you're a fan of terrible pop music. But uh, up here, this is where a good chunk of Paul's missionary journeys take place. And so you have Colossae. It's, it's right kind of smack in the middle of that continent. And uh, up to, to the left of it there on the coast is the city of Ephesus. You'll note, you'll note that one because Paul actually helped start that church and stayed there several years. And that's where we get the letter uh, to the church, to the Ephesians. Um, but Colossae is kind of right in the middle there. And we get to engage Colossae at a really interesting point in their history. And it's basically this. By the time Paul writes this letter, uh, Colossae is an incredibly unimportant, unassuming city. In fact, J.B. Lightfoot is one of the most famous a prolific North American comment, uh, scripture commenters. And he says, Colossians was, or Colossae was the least important city to which any epistle of St. Paul was ever addressed. Uh, so which is pretty brutal uh, on Lightfoot's part, but it's true. So Colossae was this Roman city that was founded um, well before the time of Jesus. And by the time of the book of Acts, it was a really, really prominent city. It sat at an intersection of two major highways that connected uh, the, the kingdoms kind of north of Israel to the Roman world. And so it blew up into a massive metropolitan city with really diverse uh, ethnic backgrounds and really diverse culture. It was, it was great. It had a, like a thriving tactile industry. In fact, you can read in Roman history about Colossian wool and Colossian dye. Uh, this, this was a community that had an impact on the Roman world until uh, the city of Laodicea was founded. And Rome said, Laodicea is actually a little more important to us strategically. And so they moved one of the highways to intersect Laodicea. And Colossae became like one of those cities that used to sit on Route 66. And it just kind of died away. And by the time the church in Colossae is founded, and by the time Paul writes this letter, this city has descended into unimportance. It still has a pretty large population. It still has a really diverse population and diverse culture. But in terms of their kind of identity as a city, remember city-states were, were really important at this time in history. Their identity has faded into obscurity. So this church gets founded, and you can read about this, by the way, uh, most theologians believe, um, somewhere around Acts 20, Paul spends a good amount of time in Ephesus, and it says that he was there and he preached so long 
that the gospel was able to spread to the entirety of Asia Minor or Phrygia. And so uh, it's believed, according to church history at least, that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul at Ephesus during his stay there. So he hears the gospel, he receives Christ, and he returns home to his city of Colossae, and he begins to preach the gospel, and a church births out of that. Which, by the way, in and of itself, is an amazing picture of how God actually designed the gospel to move forward. And I want you guys to actually think about that as we go through this book. Colossae is not an important city, and Epaphras is a person you've never heard of, and yet God worked through Paul an important guy, quote-unquote, a celebrity in the Christian world, to bring this guy to salvation, who then comes and brings the gospel into a city where it's never been heard and helps start a church that thrives and advances the work of the kingdom in a city where, as far as we know, Paul never actually stepped foot. See, in our society, uh, in our culture, we love the idea of celebrity. And so it's really easy for us to think that the professionals and the celebrities do all the good and important and hard work but Epaphras reminds us that every believer is a part of the work of the kingdom. Every believer. Even the ones who aren't famous. Even the ones who you haven't heard of. So, anyway, Paul didn't start this church. God did, through Epaphras. And he starts this church and it functions and operates in the gospel for several years. But what we find out is at some point, this church begins to descend into heresy. And this becomes so destructive to the church, Epaphras, as its leader, can no longer, he can't bring the church back to orthodoxy. Try as he might, whatever is going on in this church, his leadership is, is just not getting them there. And they're falling further into destructive wrong beliefs. And we're going to talk about the actual wrong belief they have in a second, but, but, but I want to give us the occasion for the letter uh, the epistles of the New Testament are called occasional letters, meaning that some specific happening in history um, made them come into being, right? It wasn't like Paul was just sitting down going, I've got to write a letter to every single church I've ever visited. Something happened that caused him uh, to, to write to these churches. And so the occasion of the letter to the Colossians was this heresy. Epaphras can't get a handle on it. And so eventually he gets to a point of desperation where he does the only thing he knows how to do. He leaves, and he goes and he tracks down Paul. Now, it's been years since he was at Ephesus, and he heard Paul preach. And by this time, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And he makes his way from Colossae all the way to Rome, and he finds Paul, and he tells him what's going on, and he begs Paul to speak into the heresy at his church. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. And he actually, by the way, uh, writes a secondary letter that gets delivered with it. It's one of the coolest things. We're going to look at this because Colossians is a group letter written to the whole church. But then there's also the letter to Philemon, which is in your Bible, a really short letter. Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae, and Paul wrote a specific personal instruction to him also. And we'll get to that. But, but at Epaphras's kind of uh, uh, request, Paul writes these letters to the church and sends them back. It doesn't actually send them back with Epaphras, sends them back um, with some of his own disciples to put just a little more weightiness and authority to this work. This would be the equivalent of if you guys were just 
um, just falling into heresy, and all your elders were, were yelling at you till we're blue in the face, and none of you cared. And so one of us just like drove up and found John Piper. And we're like, come on, dude, please, please rebuke this church for us. We can't do it. Uh, and so Paul does, and we're grateful that he does because uh, the letter at Colossians is, is really, really important. Essentially what's happening here is that Epaphras is pulling out the big guns, right? He's going, I've done my best to speak the truth to you guys and draw you back to orthodoxy, but you're not listening. So if you won't listen to me, maybe you'll listen to Paul. He's kind of a big deal in the church, which I know speaks right, right directly into what we just said about this idea of celebrity Christianity. But it is, it is, it's important to note here, right, that for whatever reason, Epaphras feels like they might hear this from Paul in a way they're not willing to hear it from him. Uh, and again, we're grateful for this because it's the reason we have this preserved today. So the actual heresy the Colossians are dealing with is this. Uh, it's religious syncretism. Uh, and I'll put a little definition of that up on the screens here for us. This is the blending or incorporation of two or more unrelated religious belief systems into a new system. So here's what you need to hear with this. Colossae is a super diverse city. Even though it is fading into obscurity, even though its economic prosperity and its, its renown in, in the Roman Empire is going away, the actual city itself is still pretty well known. It, is still, it still has a ton of history to it. There, there, there are people from every aspect of Roman culture settled in the city. And so what you find is, even though this church was operating in health, for multiple years, as the, church, as the city began to decline, and the people in this community began to struggle with their identity and their place in the world, all of a sudden, that gospel of Christ, that freedom in the gospel that they experienced, it stopped feeling like enough. Right? It stopped feeling like enough. They had heard the message of Jesus. They'd heard it over and over. They had accepted it. They'd wrapped their lives around it. And things were still painful and difficult. And so they began to look for what they could add into the message to make it work again, to make it as life-giving as it felt in the beginning. And they began to mix in Jewish traditions and pagan traditions and Roman traditions until they had created something that was no longer any of those faiths. Certainly wasn't Christianity. And so this is what Paul is speaking into. By the way, uh, I, I think I skipped over this earlier. I have a picture of this, this city. because It's still there. Uh, it's in, it's in present-day Turkey. Uh, and it's never been excavated. I, don't, I, I feel like right now is probably not a great time to go visit Turkey. Uh, I, I don't follow the news super well, but seems like it's probably not a place you want to visit right now. But uh, this is still there. You can go and you can walk down through the city, uh, the ruins of it, um, that's, that, that are pretty close. The sections of the city are pretty close to the time when this letter was written, and they've never been touched or excavated. The city was still occupied for, for hundreds of years after this letter, and so there's lots of different chunks to it. But it's there. You can Google images of it and things like that. Anyway, um, the way Paul chooses to address this church is amazing. This heresy is the reason he's writing the letter. And so, so what I'd like to do for us is give us kind of the flow of the letter, right? Like we know, we know a little bit who Paul is. We know a little bit who the audience is. We know a little bit what the occasion for the letter is. And let me, let me kind of give you the actual content 
of what he goes through. And so I'm going to kind of walk us through kind of the flow of this letter, and we're going to put up, I'm sorry to do this to you, Garrett, but we're going to put up an outline of the letter kind of as I walk through it and give you this flow. So you'll notice if you look at Colossians that it's pretty short. Uh, it's, it's on the shorter end of Paul's letters. Like you put it next to Romans and you're like, dang, did he even care about these people? <laughs> uh, that's not the case at all. He wanted money from the Romans. That's why that one's long. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but Colossians is really short. Uh, and so what you see here is that you have this opening introduction, right? And it's just the same kind of normal letter opening that, that anyone would give. You see it in all the epistles. And then he jumps straight into the meat. Now, if you've read a lot of Paul, if you've read Corinthians, if you've read Galatians, then you understand this is a man who has pretty much zero patience for heresy. Like if you dig into like his writings to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, this is a dude who takes heresy really seriously. And if this was the last letter by Paul you were to read, I'm pretty sure you would go into it knowing what we know going, all right, Colossians, I hope you're ready because this dude's about to blast you. You jump into Corinthians, you jump into Galatians, he's calling them fools, he's rebuking them for the idiocy and the danger of their heresy. But Colossians is different, and I think it's part of why it's going to be so good for us. You see, Paul doesn't know these people. He doesn't know them from Adam. He's never met them. But he knows that they are straying from the truth of Christ and the freedom of the gospel. And so as he addresses them, he opens his letter by praising this church thanking God for the gift of this church. And he expounds on the beautiful things God has done to make inroads into this city and the beautiful privilege of the gospel that he's given to these people that they have freedom. He thanks God for this church. And then he jumps into what is easily the most famous passage of this book where he outlines a Christology. And Mike kind of pointed at this today when we were praying. Rather than jumping straight into the heresy, he instead just says, listen, you guys love Jesus. I love Jesus. Let's talk about how amazing Jesus is for a second. And he outlines one of the most beautiful and thought out Christologies in the whole of Scripture, where he just expounds the authority of Christ, the power of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the lordship of Christ. It's where we got kind of our theme for this book of Jesus above all. If you look at the first chapter of Colossians, there is no doubt what Paul thinks about Jesus. <laughs> he starts to pick apart how this truth, this Christology, not only affects reality, but it has affected him. And he talks about how the truth of identifying with the lordship of Jesus has changed the entire trajectory of his life. And he talks about how he's willing to pay any price and give any cost to share the supremacy and the excellency of this Jesus with anyone who will listen. It is a gorgeous piece of writing. And when you get to the end of that, then he's like, okay, now let's talk about where you're wrong. But even there, even as Paul begins to address the heresy, there's so much gentleness as he begins to talk about how identifying with Christ should affect your life. 
And so he talks about how you as a church, Colossae, you as a church, you have identified with Jesus, this supreme, excellent, sufficient Jesus. He, he is your Lord, and that didn't just change my life. That should change your life. And he begins to talk about how the church should live that out and participate in the same work that he's participating in. And he picks apart these empty philosophies and false teachings that take away from Jesus and Jesus alone. He says, all this stuff, all this stuff you're going to, these are just distractions from the actual truth, the actual thing that gives life. It's about Christ, not a philosophy, not a religious tradition, not a ritual, not an incantation. It's about Jesus and him alone, his person, his work his, is complete on your behalf. And then he starts to pick into how that then, that, that identifying with Christ should affect the way the church engages the world. And he starts to talk about how identifying with this Jesus doesn't, doesn't just help you to participate in the mission of Christ, but it actually should change the way you live. It should affect your ethics. It should affect your morality. It should affect your, your actions, your decisions, your planning, your bank account. And then he starts to pick into the church's relationship with all different people. And he says, if you identify with this Jesus, it shouldn't just put you in the middle of his mission, and it shouldn't just change the way you choose to live. It should change every one of your relationships. The way you engage your spouse, the way you engage your children, the way you engage your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the lost people of the world, every relationship you have should be different because you have identified with this Lord Jesus. And then he ends out the letter by getting just really practical. He, he shows us this truth that the gospel always has flesh and bones always about real people doing real things. And he starts to pick apart some of these personal instructions and requests and things he wants to see this church do. And you even see that continued, and we're going to talk about uh, at the end of this, we'll go through the letter of Philemon together, and you see this really specific personal instruction to one member of the church that's still related back to this idea that if Christ is your Lord, if he is truly sufficient, then you will look different, and I know you'll do this thing I'm asking you to do. And that's it. It's a powerful letter with a totally, beautifully unified vision from beginning to end. Paul essentially says, listen, church, it's a miracle that you even exist. God made you. And let me tell you about the God that made your church. He is sufficient and above all. He is Lord of everything. If Jesus is who he says he is, it will change everything for you. The stuff you're doing... That's noise. That's distraction. Get that out of your life. Get away from that stuff because all you need is Jesus. And he will change everything for you. He will change the way, the trajectory of your life. He will change your relationship to the world around you. He will change your ethics, your morality, your planning. He'll change your relationships to your family, your friends, your neighbors. I want to see you live this out, church please do this, do this, like live out this faith. 
Show the sufficiency of Christ by your actions and by your life. The end. See you later. What a good letter. What a good book. I think it'll be good for us. I, uh, I was thinking about this book and thinking about what we need to do with it. And I was reminded of this truth that is really important but often not talked about in our faith tradition. And that's this. Good orthodoxy without good orthopraxy is not sound theology. It's death. Now, if you're like not a church person, you don't know those words, I'm sorry. I'm not going to explain them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> orthodoxy just means right belief. Sound belief. And orthopraxy means right action. Sound action. See, we are so, we so easily in the Protestant church, in the Western church, in the evangelical church, we so easily convince ourselves that if our theology is right, everything's okay. If we go to enough Bible studies and we do the right Beth Moore group and we jump into this and we're in this discipleship group and we practice these spiritual disciplines and we know the right things at the right times, then we are good. Because, right, it's salvation by faith alone. It's not by works that no one may boast, right? And we deceive ourselves. Yes, of course. Salvation is by faith alone. Scripture is pretty clear about that. It's not by works so that no man may boast. But as James says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Beloved, if you have fallen into the trap, the good orthodoxy is sufficient. I have terrible news for you. It is not. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is not sound theology. It is death. It is self-deception. It is puffing yourself up with knowledge. Christ was really blunt that a day will come when he will separate sheep and goats. And many people will come to him and say, what are you talking about? I've followed you my whole life. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. That's terrifying. <laughs> you guys are going, Sam, this is a really heavy way to end. <laughs> yeah. But we have to acknowledge that. Christ himself told us that there are many who will claim his name and yet they are deceived. They are deceived. They believe that they are there and that they're safe, and that they have received his salvation. And yet Christ will look at them and go, I just don't know you. Beloved, this should, this should break our hearts. This should draw us to prayer. This should draw us to Christ in, in supplication for the world and for the church. May, may it not be so. Right? So what is the misfire? <laughs> what is missed there? Guys, I'm going to say it. 
And it's going to sound to some of you just like a Christian cliche, the sort of thing a preacher says to end out a sermon that sounds good. But I need you to like slow down and I need you to hear this. What is the difference between empty, self-deceived knowledge and true saving faith? It is Christ. It is his lordship, his sufficiency, his excellency, his above allness. And I need you to sit with that for a moment. Listen, we all went to school. We can learn stuff. We can read and we can gather data and facts and we can create a collection of knowledge in our head. But we cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can do that. For he is over all and above all. And it belongs to him. And he made a way from death to life. See, I, I, think, I think back to when we were going through the Gospel of Mark and I asked the elders and we were all praying over what, what should we study next. And my heart kept coming back to this book over and over and over. And the thing that I've been praying over you guys and over myself and my home since that day was this. And we are so easily convinced that we must add something to Christ in order for our gospel to be sufficient. It is so easy to hear the truths of the gospel over and over and over, but there's a disconnect between our hearts and the reality of our life and the gospel as it's proclaimed. And we begin to go, yeah, 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 yeah. Christ is Lord, that's awesome, I believe that. But I also need this. See, the gospel's great, it's awesome, I know it works, but like, but I also have this broken relationship with my family. And like I, I really just need like healthy boundaries in place to like make sure that thing like functions. I'm not saying you shouldn't have boundaries and help healthy relationships, right? But but follow me with this. We we add all these things to our gospel. We say, yes, the gospel's amazing, but I also need this. I also need this. I also need this. I also need this. Beloved, I am here to tell you right now, Jesus is sufficient. He is. And if he's not, you do not believe the gospel of this Bible. I'm telling you. If you, if you look at your life and you go, yes, amen, I, I love the songs, I love the church, I love the friendship and community, it's, it's great, it's wonderful, but I also need this and this. Beloved, your gospel is not big enough for this broken and dead world. And I'm here to tell you, the real biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is big enough for you and for this broken and dead world. It is. There is no hurt you've experienced, no injustice done to you, no systematic wrong in our society that is so large and so powerful that, that we must add something to the sufficiency of Christ to address it. There is nothing with enough power or authority or size to be stronger than our Jesus. He is above all. He is sufficient. He is enough. He's enough. 
And guys, I know, like, I know I'm speaking this thing that's just like, that's such good, easy church language that we can amen. But please, can we be honest to say that even as we're hearing this, there are things and lies popping up in our mind going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about this? Yeah, yeah. But what about this piece or this addiction or this struggle or this sorrow or this depression? Is, is he actually enough? Because I've, I've heard you say that, but that is still there. And I still feel those things. And it seems like that sorrow is not going away and that broken relationship's not going to be fixed and this problem's not going to be solved. Beloved, yes, he is enough. He is enough. He's enough when your circumstances tell you otherwise, when your culture lies to you and tells you otherwise, when your feelings lie to you and tell you otherwise, his gospel is big enough and he is enough for you. I promise you, I promise you, There is no depth, no sin so deep and so dark that he is not deeper still. The darkness is as light to him. There is no height, there is no structure, there is no plan so wonderful that he is not more wonderful still. Let me close our time by reading us this text from Colossians. The sun is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this, beloved, is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Beloved, Jesus is enough. Our gospel is big because Jesus is bigger. Amen. I'll just end with this. It doesn't matter what you're facing. And I say that knowing full well that some of you guys are walking through hell. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus beat hell. He's bigger than that. He's stronger than that. His gospel is sufficient for that. So let's take a few minutes and let's pray. There's a couple of you 
here who are prayer counselors for me. Dan and Julie, if you guys want to stand up so people can see you. They're going to be around the room. Our elders are here. I just want to invite you guys to spend a few minutes engaging this truth with Jesus. Beloved, he has told you that he is big enough and he is sufficient and he is Lord. Whether you acknowledge that truth is up to you. What are the blocks in your heart between that truth? Be honest with God about that. Be honest with him. You can be angry in that prayer. God is big enough to handle it. He can hear your frustrations. He can hear the things in your life that to you seem insurmountable. He can bear your honesty. Talk to him about that. If you're in a place where you just need another human being to pray with you and to be in this experience with you and help you bring this to Christ, come to our prayer counselors, come to one of our pastors. We'd love to help you do that. But but find a way for you to meet with God for just a couple minutes. And then I'll close out our time in prayer and we'll continue with communion and a song. Beloved, come to your Lord in prayer. confess that I need you so desperately.
Jesus, I need you to be enough. I need you to be enough for my own brokenness and my own fear and my own insecurity, my own pride. circumstances and bigger than this world. (laughs) Jesus, I have heard the sufficiency of your gospel proclaimed so faithfully for so long. And God, if I am honest, my heart doubts so often. Speak your truth over that lie in my heart. Proclaim your excellencies over the lies in our heart. God, may the the truth of your gospel that we hear proclaimed, may it burrow its way into our hearts and become the place that we plant the flag of our lives. every facet of us. May it transform us into a a different kind of people. Radically different. Because the things of this world can't conquer us. God, do this work in our hearts. We cannot do it on our own. Give us faith, Spirit. trust you with this prayer, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.